episode 146, Interviews with a Sociologist and a Skeptic with a K. Professor Meredith Nash is a cultural social scientist who recently published a report on where the Australian Antarctic Division is at regarding diversity, inclusivity and equity. Professor Nash recently addressed the topic in an online presentation to the Centre for Oldest Ice Exploration, an organisation that forgot to start with the acronym and work their name backwards from there, arriving at COLDEX, which sounds okay, but doesn't relate to its origins, as well as some of the more pleasing examples covered in this series, such as Banzari, the Usase, and Enzarp. Professor Nash's presentation is worth a watch as it's the first of its kind I've ever encountered that features verbs. Rather than simply mapping the problem, Professor Nash offers mental and organisational frameworks for bringing about change. These reflect the recommendations Professor Nash gave to the Australian Antarctic Division as their senior consultant role came to its conclusion in 2022. Professor Nash is now the Associate Dean of Diversity, Belonging, Inclusion and Equity in the College of Engineering, Computing and Cybernetics and the College of Arts and Social Sciences at the Australian National University. Professor Nash put aside time to speak to me about their experiences, research and insights regarding the culture within the Australian Antarctic Division, at Australian research stations and in its remote field camps. How did inclusion and equity in an Antarctic context become a research interest for you? Well, I started thinking about Antarctica when I was studying um, Homeward Bound, which is a leadership program for women in STEM. And so I actually got to go to Antarctica with this cohort of very interesting women working all different STEM fields. uh, And a lot of them were actually Antarctic scientists. And so we had lots of conversations about leadership, but also about how women experienced Antarctic fieldwork. And as I was doing my study of this leadership program, I was asking the participants to make me video diaries. And so they were using their cam- like their phone cameras just to record life on the ship. And so after the voyage, when my research assistant and I were looking at all of these video diaries, one of the women in the study had made this video just after one of the male crew members of the ship had tried to sexually assault her. And so that was obviously like a... Uh, a surprising, horrifying moment in the course of research, but it was really one of the profound, in, my profound sort of introduction to Antarctica. And it was really from that moment that I started to think much more specifically about um, at remote Antarctic fieldwork for women, you know, the gender challenges of doing fieldwork, and then also thinking about sexual harassment specifically in remote environments. So I, I entered Antarctica in a kind of strange way. (laughs) I didn't anticipate being there from the start. And was it that experience that led directly to your commissioning with the Australian Antarctic Division to examine their culture? Well, no, it was sort of several years between coming off the ship with the Women's Leadership Program and then doing my own studies, specifically looking at Antarctic fieldwork that eventually got me noticed by the division. So I had done a few studies pretty compelling, with some compelling evidence around the challenges women were facing in the field. And we specifically uh, were looking at women's experiences of the Australian Antarctic program. 
And so I'd written this one study in 2017, and then I'd done some more work around uh, sexual harassment in Antarctica. And, and actually, for the most part, I mean, honestly, no one was really listening to us. I mean, we did the first the first published work on these topics, and I think we scared national Antarctic programs to death. Um, nobody really wanted to hear what we had to say. And actually, I mean, the Antarctic Division in Australia had a change of leadership, and so there was a much different mindset in terms of the research that we had done. And that's how I ended up being invited in 2020 to come on as a senior advisor to the program. And that's when they commissioned my cultural review. So it was at least five years between going to Antarctica and then actually being invited into the division. The report that you published on your work as senior advisor to the Australian Antarctic division came out in October, 2022 and received the response from Tanya Plebisic, the minister in charge of the division that the Antarctic division comes under. Um, she said she, that she was gobsmacked. And Kim Ellis, when asked to front Parliament, said that he lacked the internal authority to have brought about change. What does that phrase mean to you as someone that's seen inside the division under Kim Ellis' leadership? He lacked the authority to bring about change. It's an interesting phrase because you would assume that if you are the director of the division, that you are the primary person who has the authority to create change. And in fact, you know, Kim was the person that hired me. I advised him directly for several years around issues of diversity and inclusion in the program and, um, and you know, spoke to him directly about my findings as they emerged. So, I mean, I think that there is just a general reticence when it comes to not just talking about sexual harassment, but the broader broader questions of diversity and inclusion. I think that organizations are scared to tackle them and also um, just don't really know how to start. So I think that Kim had really genuine intentions for the most part, but I mean, it's a much broader, like, leadership structure in the department where many people have to be on board to actually making substantive change. And I think that Kim's comment reflects the fact that um, he may not have had the support that he needed in order to do what he wanted. But of course, as a media soundbite, I mean, I think it wasn't the greatest, it wasn't a, the fulsome response that I, I imagine the Australian public would want to hear upon reading my report that was pretty shocking by all accounts. Well, that's something else that has been sticking in my mind. It's, it's 30 years since the Women in Antarctica conference where people began to vocalise their concerns about diversity and entitlement and equity in Antarctica, and 20 years since Robin Burns published Just Tell Them I Survived, which is not explicit, but you can see the, the challenges and the sexism and the inequality mapped in the bones of that book. Why do you think it is that people are acting so surprised that you've quantified those problems with your report? I don't know that people are surprised. I think probably the general public is surprised because Antarctica is not a place that many people think about in general, and they certainly don't think about it as a workplace. So I think there is a kind of prurient interest in Antarctica, particularly something like sexual harassment in that place. But Certainly my findings are not surprising to anybody inside the division or anybody who is familiar with Antarctic research or who has done remote polar fieldwork, that there is a 
longstanding phrase that, uh, you know, what happens in Antarctica stays in Antarctica. And I think that, you know, there are lots of anecdotal stories about uh, women's experiences down south. Um, I don't think anybody's surprised by what I wrote. Uh, it's just the fact that it's now public in a way that it's actually been documented and not just kind of hearsay or whispers in the hallway. Um, I think that nothing has, well, not much has changed since, you know, that 1993 conference um, or Robin Burns book that actually the same issues still linger. And the fact is that, you know, it's not just the Australian program, but national Antarctic programs generally have not taken the steps required to make remote field, field environments safe or equitable for women. And that women have actually been dealing with these issues amongst themselves for decades, which is um, not only just unfair and unsafe, but also has caused lots of women to leave polar work because they felt like they couldn't, you know, just survive, like Robin Burns's book alludes to. Your report maps five barriers, or your report and your papers map five barriers to inclusivity in Antarctic research programs. And one of them caught me by surprise, the access to menstrual products and the privacy and opportunity to use them wasn't being made available to expeditioners. And that contrasts with condoms, which are freely available on station. You don't need to ask for them. There's no gatekeeping about them. That seems to be one of the most basic changes that a program could make to help people who menstruate feel included and seen within a program. Is that something that's changing within the Australian Antarctic Division? It's a really interesting area and it's, it's definitely changing. I know that the program has made some big changes to the way that they uh, provide menstrual products to expeditioners since my report came out. But the fact is that I wasn't even looking for that. Like menstruation just ended up becoming a really important topic, not because I was looking for it in my interviews with expeditioners, but actually because that was something when I asked the question, you know, can you tell me about your experiences of field work? That's the first thing women wanted to talk about was that, you know, it was kind of this secret business between women about particularly working in like all male field teams and having to deal with not only issues of privacy, but also the logistics and planning required to manage menstruation and to, you know, ensure high, like ensure, you know, hygiene and all the basic things that we take for granted, those kind of like mundane bodily experiences in, in daily life that we don't really think about, but that in a remote environment end up becoming very difficult to manage. And women had these wild stories about um, how they were, you know, keeping tampons in their bodies for longer than they should or not having the opportunity to wash properly or having to kind of, you know, change tampons or change products in the, in the company of, um, you know, male team members and feeling like there were no standard operating practices around that. They were just kind of making up the rules as they went along and, you know, feeling really ashamed about that, that they had to, these, you know, women were having to deal with this like children basically. And so, that ended up being a really important part of the work that I did. And it was, you know, not just limited to menstruation per se, but also just the matter of toileting. Like actually, like for example, you know, historically women were not issued a female urinary device. 
that it was kind of, again, like taboo to go to the field store and you'd have to ask for it. And then once you were given it, nobody would show you how to use it. Um, so again, women kind of had to play with the device to work out how it would fit in field clothing. And it's this big logistical endeavor to get it to work properly. And um, what I, so once I did those interviews, I ended up talking to a bunch of um, field training officers as well within the division. I got all these amazing tips and the most amazing outcome of the work was that we changed the Australian Antarctic Field Manual to include information about menstruation and toileting for the first time, like ever in history. Um, it was just kind of mind blowing that that was never in there before. And it actually, it took quite a lot of time to even get it in there because, you know, people were so shocked about it. It took me a lot longer than I anticipated to get it done. Well, you've answered my next, well, one of my next questions about whether or not your influence was starting to change the field manuals and the field training approach. That's fantastic. I'm sorry to hear that it took such such a long time and so much effort, but it's good to hear that it is coming in at that level. And that relates to something that you spoke of in a recent presentation to the Coldex seminar, the difference between interrupting and disrupting the the barriers to entry or the the inequalities. And watching what's happening within the United States Antarctic program, they're putting locks on people's doors, they're putting in place bystander training shortly before people deploy. They've put a human resources attendant that people can turn to if they're being sexually harassed. It seems to me that they're taking more the interrupt than the disrupt approach and I'm I'm pleased to see specks of hope that the Australian Antarctic Division is taking more a disruptive approach to change. The, the Secretary to the Climate Change, Energy, Environment and Water Department, David Fredericks, has commissioned Lee Russell to review the Australian Antarctic Division's implementation of the I think it was forty bullet point proposals that you put forward. Do you know where that process is up to? I mean, it's unclear. I think Lee Russell's report is supposed to, was supposed to come out at the end of February. So I think it's sort of any day now that we should have this report. But I mean, I suppose it does speak to one of your earlier questions around, um, you know, I've been doing this work for a long time and we're getting to the point where how much evidence do we need that change needs to happen? There have been multiple examples that have been shared around the division in terms of women's experiences. We now have multiple published studies about gendered barriers to Antarctic field work. I have done the division's first cultural review, and now there's going to be like a second cultural review that Lee Russell is undertaking. And I just, I mean, we're at the point now where we either we do it or we don't, and we stop talking about it. Because I think at this point, um, everybody is, at least in the Australian program, is really hungry for change, certainly the expeditioners and the workforce. Um, but it really is going to take a leadership team that is radical in its thinking about how things can change. And as you said, I mean, lots of bits and pieces are happening in national programs. Like the U.S. is trying to address lots of features of their report, um, you know, putting locks on people's doors, just trying to ensure people are safe in the short term. But the fact is that when we're going to address these big questions about inclusion for women in particular, like that's overhauling how we recruit expeditioners. Like this is decades long work that actually requires not only like it requires leadership vision 
and support, but it also requires resources and kind of intentionality of effort. And without those things, I, you know, to really tackle the system, the program can't change. And I think that we're at a, it's like a once in a generation moment to really do this thing right. I mean, Jane Willenbrain came forth with her, the first kind of accusations of sexual harassment in the Antarctic science community in 2017. And that was just at the time when Me Too was kicking off around stories from Hollywood. And, you know, nothing has really happened in those intervening five years until now. So I, I really feel like this is the time. If we were ever going to do anything, it has to be now. How does what you witnessed within the Australian Antarctic Division contrast with your experience in academia at UTAS and now at Australian National University? Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, there are lots of, in terms of cultural problems, like lots of different institutions feel familiar in the sense that, you know, women are treated in particular ways and in, in workplace settings that are very similar. But of course, you know, women in STEM are a particular cohort of um, workers that are have experienced widespread discrimination and gender bias. But then, you know, you have certain protections with when you're within the confines of a normal workspace, like an office or a university. Whereas when you work in an extreme environment, like in, you know, Antarctic fieldwork, that's not seen as being the same. That even though, for example, Australian Antarctic expeditioners are actually public servants, they are employees of the Australian government. Um, things that go, things go on in Antarctica, in the field, that would never be allowed in an Australian government office, for example. Um, so I think that there are some issues around like the ge like geographical location in terms of how problems are managed, but also, I mean, Antarctica seen as so far away and in the kind of popular imagination, Antarctica is not seen as a workplace. And, and that's what it is. It is a workplace and it needs to be treated the same, that the rules from, you know, Australian workplace laws do apply on station and in the field. And the, but the fact is that those rules have not been enforced properly because it's kind of treated like, you know, the Wild West. Again, what happens in Antarctica stays in Antarctica. And that has had all sorts of implications for women in terms of talking about what goes on down there and making reports if they, if they need to be that they probably wouldn't face if they were just, you know, working in a university or in a more, you know, what we would refer to as like a more normal working environment um, where it's a lot safer um, to come forward when things happen and you can get support. I know the Australian program has altered its rules regarding alcohol consumption and banned homebrew, which threw a lot of the old boys club into a spin because they're seen it as such a, a powerful tradition. Do you think that, well, how do you perceive alcohol as having contributed to the problem? And do you see the changes as holding scope for positive outcomes? Yeah, it's, it's a great question because I think alcohol is provided sort of the mainstay. It's like the a core of social interaction on station for decades. Um, it's been essential in creating a kind of male like an all, you know, it's part of an all male environment. Like that's the thing where, you know, you knock up after work and you have a drink and stations have bars and that's the primary way that you can interact socially on stations still to this day. So, I mean, alcohol creates a permissive environment for something like sexual harassment, but it's not necessarily the only reason, for example, something like sexual harassment happens. So I think that there are a lot of reasons why 
limiting the consumption of alcohol on stations is important. But of course, it comes with a huge backlash. Um, I think the Australian program made a great decision to do that. But there's been, I think, you know, the workforce hasn't necessarily understood why alcohol's being limited. And I think that there hasn't been a sufficient replacement for it. So for example, I think the Australian's program was planning on having like coffee bars or, you know, some kind of suitable other way that people can interact and hang out without doing it over drink, like a beer, for example. But that's not necessarily been implemented on station. So, you know, now it's better to talk about the fact that everybody kind of stays in their room because you can't necessarily do the drinking that you'd normally do together. And so I think that, yeah, there, there are multiple reasons now why sort of the social environment has changed. And, you know, if you're going to take something away, you kind of need to have an alternative. And I don't think the program has necessarily thought that through. But I do know from women's experiences, like, you know, women often talk about being scared to go into the bar in station, because, again, if you're one of the few women on station, being in a room with a bunch of men drinking, you know, many people who might be kind of violently drunk by the end of an evening, um, that's a really unsafe environment and again these are this isn't just um like your home this is a place where you work and live with your colleagues who aren't necessarily of your choosing for 24 7 and so again this kind of environment would never be accepted in any other kind of like australian workplace but yet these sorts of things like these these things continue to happen in antarctica and have been totally acceptable for decades what you've just described would leave me feeling unsafe, a, a bar featuring violently drunken colleagues. So, again, I'm just surprised that it's taken your report to get the problem traction. It's quite disappointing. I was going to ask via email, because it's more of a selfish question, uh, I'll give you context. I've applied for a station leader role within the Australian Antarctic Division, and I don't like my chances, but what advice would you give to a prospective base leader with regards to making the weakest and least socially acclimated person feel safe during a season on the ice? I think leadership remains one of the primary challenges in Antarctica that I think for the most part, you know, Antarctica has become a really militarized place. So often the leaders like models for leadership have been like ex-military station leaders, um, command control kind of styles of leadership, which don't necessarily accord with the modes of leadership that we expect in, again, like in a normal working environment that's not in Antarctica. That I think, you know, we think about transformational leadership. We want to we want leaders that can support everybody, as you say, like from the weakest person on station socially to the strongest, most extroverted person, uh, that everybody feels like they're included and that they belong. And I think that part of that is incumbent on again how the program selects station leaders. I think typically I think there is bias built into the system in terms of who is seen as the prototypical model of station leader. Often it's a cisgender white ex-military person um, who is, already has Antarctic experience. <laughs> and I think that, again, thinking much more expansively about who a station leader is and what leadership is required needs to be built into that recruitment process. But also, you know, thinking through how expeditioners are trained and 
you know, what kind of leadership training is provided before people deploy for the group itself to cohere the group in terms of the social norms that they want to set up before they go down together, and also how the station leader is going to support the group dynamic. I think that a lot of that is treated as an afterthought because, you know, recruitment has to happen really quickly. Like it's a, it's a, practically an eight month process. It requires a lot of training. And I think that some of the, what are often referred to kind of offensively as soft skills <coughs> are not accounted for um, or invested in appropriately. And that's why we have a lot of the problems that we currently do on stations. I'll finish up with the question I ask all guests to the series what was the most inspiring and what was the most harrowing thing that you experienced during your time in Antarctica itself? I suppose most inspiring by far was, of course, the landscape, but also just being in the company of all of these amazing women. I mean, I went as part of this leadership program and <laughs> I was just amazed by, you know, the breadth of experience and knowledge that I got to experience as part of that voyage and also getting to think about, you know, the work and leadership in situ at these amazing sites and to experience sort of the last, the last remaining wilderness. I mean, that was, that's something, it's like going to another planet. It's absolutely mind blowing. But obviously the most harrowing part of that is it's kind of like the harshness of the Antarctic environment in many ways mirrored the kinds of stories that women had about being in that place, especially the Antarctic scientists that were on that ship that I met. And, um, you know, I think that there was kind of, uh, that ship for me became a, it was like a strange vessel for women's trauma that came out as part of this program sort of unexpectedly and led me on this kind of long, strange path into <laughs> exploring women's experiences of Antarctic fieldwork, which I never, I never expected to be in this place. Like that was not how I entered that voyage, but I came out a very different person and kind of had totally changed my research trajectory and kind of career path to focus on um, to focus on Antarctica. And so it's sort of a gift, but also it's been a burden in a lot of ways. Wow. I'm disappointed that we're a quarter, quarter of the way through the 21st century and Australia's only just getting to grips with these problems, but I'm extremely grateful that you're in the vanguard of helping us deal with them. Professor Nash, Thank you so much for your efforts and thank you for your time speaking to Ice Coffee. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. You can find links to Professor Nash's Coldex presentation and reports at the Ice Coffee WordPress site. I mentioned in episode 142 and during the interview with Professor Nash that I threw my hat in the ring for a base leadership role within the Australian Antarctic Division. I've since received word that I'm no longer in the running. I've requested feedback on my shortcomings from Hayes Recruiting in Hobart, and I look forward to filling the gaps in my knowledge and experience in order to get further along that track in the future. Michael Marshall looms large in my earphones, producing and co-hosting a number of podcasts I subscribe to, and turning up as a guest on a number of other series I listen to. A founding member of the Merseyside Skeptics, editor of the Skeptic magazine, co-organiser of the QED conference series, host of the Be Reasonable podcast and co-host of Skeptics with a K, Marsh has done a lot to push back against homeopathy and anti-vax initiatives 
and regularly meets with a degree of success that inspires and embarrasses other sceptical organisers in almost equal measure. By deliberately placing himself in contact with proponents of flat earth hypotheses, he's probably the best informed person on the planet regarding those ideas who doesn't actually believe the earth is flat. He put aside his Sunday morning to speak to me on my Sunday evening because the earth's an oblate spheroid and offered a fascinating overview of the what and the why of flat earth models and how their proponents incorporate Antarctica into them. When I first started writing articles for the internet, I was putting together a piece about Lou Grade, the television producer that Mm. gave Britain Thames Television and the Thunderbirds. And I seemed to remember at the time of his death, someone mentioned that he'd been a flat earth adherent. Mm. And so when I started writing the article, I went looking for information and I couldn't find anything. And I ended up joining a forum of the Flat Earth Society. And yeah. The, the person that was in charge of the Flat Earth Society told me that the records were burnt in a house fire. So he couldn't tell me about whether or not Lou mm-hmm. Grade had been a, a Flat Earth adherent. And the forum itself mostly seemed to be middle-aged guys having a bit of a, an internet wank and testing ideas because it was funny and fun to pretend that you believed in a flat earth and people would come to them and, and sort of present arguments against it and they would be snide and, and shitty. Surprising on the internet, middle-aged men, geez. Mm. But um, <laughs> yeah, at some point between then and now, it seems to have picked up a lot of sincere adherents. Do you, do you have a, a point in history that you can name that led to that change? Yeah, yeah, I think we can track it. So um, I, like you, I, I first came across uh, the flat earth, the modern flat earth uh, idea through the Flat Earth Society, uh, which is, you know, the forum that you're, you're talking about. I, I interviewed Michael Wilmore, who was the, I think, the vice president of the Flat Earth Society at the time. And it was being run by a guy called uh, uh, Shenton. Uh, I think it was Daniel Shenton. Yeah, Daniel Shenton was the, yeah, the name yeah. that he was he was taking. Now, that name itself is a, is a, a deep Flat Earth reference because um, one of the earliest uh, forms of the Flat Earth Society was set up by a guy called Samuel Shenton. Uh, in the I think it was the sixties something in that kind of era, my timeline's a little a little loose on it these days. But a guy, but he was a he was a uh, an evangelical Christian, Samuel Shenton, who picked up the older, or even older traditions of the flat Earth uh, movement. So if if I had to give you a little bit of uh, like a potted history of flat Earth, if you go back to uh, eighteen thirty eight, you've got a guy called uh, Samuel Rawbotham who wants to disprove Darwinism, wants to disprove all of evolution, and he does that by demonstrating that the world is flat in a series of experiments that he pu- he published under the name Parallax, uh, and those experiments were in a pamphlet called uh, uh, Zetetic Astronomy: the uh, the Earth is not a globe. And so these are the various things like uh, doing experiments on a canal where his friend would row away on a boat and he'd be able to see his friend even though that his friend had passed beyond the point where the curvature should be between them. And he would publish uh, those experiments. And some of those experiments were replicated. There's a lot of controversy over how uh, accurately he was... um, he was uh, documenting the exact things that he was doing and whether he was fudging the edges in order to, to make it seem like the world was flat when actually he was uh, the experiments he was doing even then were coming back with the conclusion that the world was round. 
So you had uh, Rawbotham uh, and publishing this stuff. You had Samuel Shenton pick it up in the 60s. Um, in the in the 70s, when Samuel Shenton died, uh, the Flat Earth Society, uh, the nascent Flat Earth Society, was taken over by a, a chap called Charles K. Johnson, who was an American uh, evangelical preacher. And he transplanted the uh, society to America, called it the Flat Earth Research Society of America. And that was kind of where the Flat Earth Society went. And it was Charles K. Johnson's house that burned down. Um, and in that house were the books with all the names and addresses of the Flat Earth Society. So that's why it kind of went dormant for a while until this forum sprung back up. And, and as you say, it was uh, a mix of people who enjoyed the intellectual pursuit of arguing a position they knew to be false, um, mixed in with some people who genuinely believed it. And the way that I kind of characterized that, and if you were around at the time, perhaps you could, uh, you could uh, tell me whether this was your experience, is that the people who knew they were arguing uh, something that wasn't true and were just having fun with it, um, came up with some pretty esoteric, off-the-wall explanations that were hard to debunk on, on the face of it because they were so bizarre, unusual, or unexpected. And those seemed so persuasive that they really persuaded the people who genuinely believed it. And so there was an effect there where the intellectual trolls were kind of hardening in the uh, the, the people who genuinely believed. Um, and then you also had, as you say, people would come along and try and disprove the uh, the flat earth uh, ideas and proponents wrong. And these intellectual trolls, knowing full well that the world is round, but having fun with it, uh, would find even more uh, surprising ways to get out of those uh, those traps that they were put in by the people trying to disprove them. And the fact that they would win some of those arguments would again have the, the effect of uh, hardening the belief in those who really believe. So the people who came in half-cocked trying to challenge the flat earth ideas, having never thought about it before, were losing to people who spent a lot of their time trying to think about it, even if they didn't believe it. And that kind of had this effect of, of hardening belief, but not necessarily growing the movement. I remember one of the arguments I saw at the time was about... Uh, the about gravity in a flat earth world very difficult to explain gravity if you don't have a, a large sphere with a central spherical mass to produce a gravitational effect but these intellectual trolls would say well what is gravity it's a, a, an acceleration downwards drop something it'll accelerate towards the ground at 9.8 meters per second squared what difference these people would ask is that to a world in which you drop something and the ground comes up to meet it at 9.8 meters per second squared so the so the earth is traveling upwards and accelerating upwards and people would say well obviously if you're accelerating for long enough you're going to eventually hit the speed of light which you can't do and these intellectual trolls would say you're right you can't go faster than the speed of light but look at einstein's theory of relativity and it says that as you approach light speed time itself slows down and so that's what that's what's happening the earth is going up it's getting faster and faster but time is slowing down the dilation effect means that we don't experience it any differently and that's a lot to unpack and as an ex as a, an explanation for the flat earth it might sound persuasive to the people who come in half cocked and to the people who really believe but it's not going to recruit people to your movement because you have to have a working working understanding of einstein's theory of relativity before you can begin to accept that as a, as a proof so it, it had a self-limiting factor and all of that, to get in a very roundabout way to your question, all of that changed with the publication to YouTube of a couple of series of videos. One of them was a video uh, by uh, Eric Dubay called Two and a Proof the World is Not a Spinning Ball. Uh, and the other was Flat Earth Clues by Mark Sargent. And these uh, were 2014 and 2015. So, you know, six years on from when I, five or six years on from when I first came across the Flat Earth movement, I think. Um, but rather than being these deeply 
uh, intricate, these deeply sophisticated arguments, they were incredibly simplistic. So of the 200 proofs the world is not a spinning ball from Eric Dubay, number one was it, you can't see a curve. Number two was like, well, you can't feel that you're spinning. It doesn't feel like we're on a big spinning ball. Really just uh, things that were pitched at the gut level and not the intellectual level. So they were a much, much lower level of sophistication. And the reason I brought up Samuel Rawbotham way, way back at the start is because many of the proofs that, that Eric Dubay used in his 200 Proofs the World is Not a Spinning Ball, which is a YouTube video and a, an ebook, um, were directly taken from Samuel uh, Rawbotham's 1838 or, or 1870, I think he actually published it. Uh, his uh, his original work that he published as Parallax. So he'd literally just copy and pasted from this century and a, well, two century, well, century and a half old, old document. He copy and pasted exactly the same arguments. And here they were setting a light to the, the flat earth movement uh, for a second time in their life um, using the, uh, the, the, the technology of YouTube and the, the mass marketing of YouTube. So it was really, that's the inflection point. That's the point where uh, the, the touch paper was lit was when these videos started going to YouTube. And a big, big part of it was that YouTube at the time was aggressively uh, recommending thing videos to its users. And it still does, but its, it's algorithm for doing that um, essentially included uh, a, a metric of is, if this video is being watched by a lot of people, it must be pretty good, um, regardless of why people are watching it. So you could be looking at footage of the Earth from space on the International Space Station and somewhere in the recommendations, someone might say, uh, one of YouTube might say, well, do you want to watch this video about the Earth being flat? And some people would watch that video because they thought, yeah, that seems interesting. Uh, some people would, would be genuinely keen to find out if the world was flat. Other people would watch it because they thought it was hilarious that someone would think that. And some people would watch it like six times in a row, pausing every few uh, claims so they could write them down and debunk them. And all YouTube saw was one very large audience. It didn't see a series of individual audiences with different motivations. And so the more people watched it, the more it hardened YouTube's algorithms uh, will to recommend this video. And the more that it was pushing it aggressively at people. And when you, when you talk to flat earthers and you ask them how they got into the flat earth, it's something, I think there was an experiment, a study done at the, at the flat earth uh, conference in America um, where they asked people, how did you get in? Of the 30 people, I think it was that they asked, 29 of them said, I was watching videos on YouTube and it was recommended to me. And the 30th said, my son found it on YouTube. So YouTube was the big, big recruiting tool. And it was really Eric DeBay's video and then Mark Sargent's video that were the, the two cornerstones of the, and the foundations of the modern, modern Flat Earth movement. I, I'm... Just getting over the sadness that middle-aged internet trolls with nothing better to do have led to this <laughs> this point in our history. Um, the 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 problem of Poe's law and you know any sufficiently extreme position is impossible to parody because the parody is impossible to distinguish from sincere sincere. Mm. Um, I don't understand why people make unfunny parodies. Like, <laughs> perhaps they're just not. Perhaps they're just not able to. You know, there are people out there that aren't funny, and I. Oh, this this goes off into another direction. I've been thinking about recently that people that use their hobby as a 
personality, when their hobby becomes their entire persona. Mm. And I started thinking about this watching Tiger King and thinking about the other people in my life that are working with charismatic animals and use the charismatic animals as a way to get other people to spend time with them because there's something going on that, and I think it's a sense of humour, the people in my life that work with dolphins that have made marine mammal research their entire persona couldn't make another person laugh Mm. if their life depended on it. And (laughs) I think humour is a really important human trait. It's it's a, a, a form of gambit in dialogue. And if you can so make I, another I think, person, I think that's laugh. true. But I, I, to be honest, I'm not sure I would. So I, I think you're right. But I, I, I also wouldn't uh, write off even the flat Earth, uh, you know, the flat Earth Society forum. I wouldn't write the majority of them off as um, as poles, as people who didn't believe it. I, I think where it gets really interesting for me is it's it's hard to extricate the people who were there for a laugh from the people who really believed it. And there's kind of a grey area too, where there's people who are like on the fence and they're just they're they're coming up with stuff that they may or may not fully believe but they're coming up with it because deep down they want to believe and so they're they're searching for anything they can to justify what they already believe so it's i don't think it's quite as straightforward as even saying that the flat earth society itself was uh was primarily driven by um people who were as you say middle-aged trolls uh, doing it for a laugh i i think there was a what I found with the flat Earth movement and, and and where it became is this: it's kind of this this meeting point of people with lots of different motivations, all coalescing around this one idea that they want to use for their own their own purpose. Um, and whether that's a, an internal purpose in terms of like self uh, self assurance and reassurance about the world and things, or whether it's an external purpose of getting position and getting acclaim and getting uh, a level of attention. Um, either way, I think. Yeah, I think the people who were who were there, I, I don't know that uh, the majority of them were, were even there at the time to just muck about and have a laugh. But I think it only takes a small kernel of those to direct an otherwise sincere and uh, inquisitive but slightly blindfolded uh, population. You know, it only takes a couple of uh, of bad apples to rot the whole barrel. Wow. So. You mentioned people using flat earth theory for internal and external reasons. And I'm wondering, Mm. um, what do you think the perceived benefit of convincing yourself and others that the earth isn't an oblate spheroid comes to? What's, What's the end game for a person that not only believes that the earth is flat, but is is holding forth trying to convince other people? What are they trying to achieve? Yeah, so I think there's a there's a, a number of different uh, purposes out there, and and some of them will exist in various flat Earth uh, proponents. Multiple will exist in one particular, in any particular flat Earth proponent. Um, a big part of it, surprisingly to me, um, was religiosity. So I, I spent time just for for, for background for for listeners who may not know kind of my my experiences of the flat Earth world. Uh, I've, uh, as well as coming across the Flat Earth uh, Forum and, and interviewing them for Be Reasonable, uh, I then went to several Flat Earth meetups after the explosion on uh, on YouTube, so about 2016, 2017. Uh, and I went to the, tw- to the uh, 
Flat Earth Conference in, in uh, Birmingham, UK in 2018, where I spent three days in a hotel with 300 people who thought the world was flat. I've seen speakers uh, all talking about kind of their, their version of Flat Earth. And I've interviewed various other sort of leading Flat Earth proponents on, on my podcast too. And so what I found is what, a couple of things that surprised me. One of them was the level of religiosity that was still involved in the Flat Earth. Um, that this is still uh, an evangelical um, Christianity, but not necessarily a specific denomination of Christianity uh, recruiting tool. Um, and that can be as overt as the Dutch group, which I think is the uh, the biblical truth of Flat Earth. Or the, no, the real gospel of Flat Earth is the name of this Dutch group who uh, I met at the conference and I interviewed on my show, where they believe that create a creationist worldview is absolutely true. And they you, they support that through biblical reference um, and they use that biblical reference to also reference the fact that the world is flat so they'll point to particular bible passages that hint at the world being flat and then they'll use experimentation to prove that the world is flat and then say well you see the bible was right about this while while your conventional science was wrong so maybe the bible is right on this other stuff like creationism and your conventional science of evolution and the big bang maybe that was wrong too so there's an explicitly and overtly religious motivation to that group Um, Which for me is interesting because that was the original motivation of the Flat Earth movement when it kicked off in 1838. That was Samuel Robotham's, um, if not explicit, then certainly pretty clear uh, point. Um, that's why he he and his followers uh, got into arguments with Alfred Russell Wallace, one of the leading proponents of uh, of evolution uh, at the time. And he had a, a, a long, long, there was a, a chap called John Hamden, who was a dedicated follower of Samuel Robotham, who had a long, long running rivalry with uh, Alfred Russell Wallace throughout his life to the ruination of his life. He lost all of his money in bets. He was uh, eventually jailed several times for continually libeling uh, Alfred Russell Wallace and refusing to back down because he wholeheartedly believed that these evolutionists were wrong and the, the earth was flat and proof of uh, proof of the, the biblical creation. And so there is still this, this biblical creationism sort of threaded through flat earth. Eric Dubay is a creationist, for example. Um, but then there's also this kind of softer form of religiosity, um, which I which I saw a lot. I interviewed one uh, leading flat earther in the UK, a guy called Darren Nesbitt, um, who told me that he was an atheist um, who felt a bit spiritual but didn't believe in a god and when people come knocking this door and preaching fire and brimstone um, that was never going to do it for him because he was a peace and love kind of guy but when people started coming and, and saying that actually there's this big truth that the, that god will reveal to you and it'll change your entire view of the world and it, it, it was this kind of big positive we'll all come together kind of idea that caught him up and and so he became a christian off the back of the the flat earth movement because when people talked to him about this stuff and then talked him through the proofs of the flat earth he was just in the right place to accept that so there is still this religiosity that runs through it as a kind of a recruiting tool whether whether overtly recruiting tool or just kind of implicitly in the way that they talk to people um and then the other thing that i thought was really striking and i think kind of gets to a big big part of a lot of the psychology uh, from, a, from a very amateur psychologist kind of uh, perspective um, of the people I've met in the Flat Earth. When I was uh, attending the Flat Earth conference with uh, with Alice Howarth from Skeptics of the K and deputy editor of the Skeptic magazine, um, when we sat there and we, we watched all of the speakers, it really struck us just how many of the speakers, the people who've been flown in to talk about this stuff or who were leaders of the movement, would mention at some point during their talk about a personal crisis they'd been through. 
So one guy, had he, he describes that he had a midlife crisis after 9-11 when he was living in New Jersey and he started living an off-the-grid lifestyle um, and drinking his own urine to cure all, all manner of disease um, and became a, 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 a flat earther at that point. Um, another person was talking about how they were they had um, a health a serious health issue which led them to be uh, sort of confined to home for a long time they couldn't really get out much and so they spent all their time online they came across the flat earth and it opened up their eyes um, and so speaker after speaker would say about how they were going through this really rough time in their life and then they realized the world was flat and everything started to click um, and so I think that kind of the influence of personal crisis on our ability um, all of our ability to discern fact from fiction and to discern reality from uh, from fantasy um, is something we shouldn't downplay because you can go through something that just kicks you onto a different set of tracks. Um, and even if you recover and you you, re- you regain that full sense of self, you don't realise you're now on a different set of tracks because you can't look back and see that the train jumped tracks um, during that moment of crisis. So I think for some people, there is that kind of comfort of uh of of a bigger picture and so uh, for a lot of people i think the other motivation is when your life isn't going the way that you hoped it would it's very hard to know who to blame for that if you subscribe to a conventional worldview so why is it that you your relationship broke down or you lost a loved one or, or your your job kind of went away or, or, or whatever you know, the best that we have to offer is sometimes that stuff stuff happens and it isn't necessarily even anyone's fault. Um, but you can't really rage against that, that you can't really oppose that. But if someone comes along and say, well, actually, this was all part of an incredibly detailed and specific plan and they're, they're hiding all these big things from you. And all we need to do is stand up to the evil people who are hiding stuff um, and oppose them then suddenly you've got yourself a a storyline arc, you've got yourself agency, you've got yourself action that you can take, and you can take back control of your life. And so I think for some people as well, that is the benefit they get, is that they get a a big bad guy, you know, they get an evil evil entity out there that they can oppose and stand up to and fight back against and and join with other people in a community in doing so. That's a lot to take in, but it's an incredible perspective that you've... um... (laughs) I'm I'm staggered and it's to your credit that you've been able to assemble that because I've I've sort of been following this over the years but never um never interacting. Oh there was one occasion one of one of my children's friends mm. um saw a ship sitting behind the horizon. He could see the superstructure but not the hull. And my children who are accustomed to talking to me about the sea and I go off on ships and stuff and they watch ships disappear over the, the local horizon. Um, one of them commented, oh, that, you know, it's behind the curve. And their little friend said, no, the earth's mm. flat. The earth is flat, my priest told me. And they're from a, a Greek Orthodox church. And yeah. <sighs> So the, there's potentially entire families in my community from that church that are getting about thinking that the earth is flat because their priest told them. But um, yeah, it's it's. Yeah, I'm really grateful that you've shared that insight, garnered from your years of interacting with these people. Um, now to the reason that I, or the excuse that I found to get you on my podcast, how does Antarctica fit <laughs> into flat Earth models? 
Yeah, so it, it fits in, in in a few different ways, depending on who you talk to. So, so there are different versions of the Flat Earth. So uh, this is one of the things that actually um, struck me when I first started talking to Flat Earthers. In my head, I had it that there was a uh, a disc version of the Earth. You had the Arctic Circle in the middle. You had the, the continents of the world sort of splayed out from there. So the Northern Hemisphere would be closest to the, the centre of the circle and the Southern Hemisphere would be on the towards the, the, the edges of the circle. And then you'd have Antarctica, instead of being a discrete landmass or a, a relatively discrete landmass, it would be this kind of splayed out around the edges of a ring of ice. But that is actually only one model of the flat Earth. There are others. Um, so one of them would posit a similar kind of model, except instead of it being a ring of ice, there's actually a dome on top of the, the Earth, which comes down at Antarctica. So it's like like the ice wall, but the ice wall kind of goes up and covers the entirety of the Earth. And therefore, the, the sun and the stars and the moon are all projections on that dome or, or, um, or uh, paintings on that dome. And that's the model of the Earth that Mark Sargent, who produced Flat Earth Clues, that he fundamentally believes in. Uh, and I talked to him about that that, that model of the Earth. Um, and then there's other, another model of the Earth where you do have that sort of disk, but instead of having a discrete edge to the disk and then who knows what beyond, um, you have Antarctica, but Antarctica just continues in forever in all directions and that there's an infinity of ice beyond the edge of the water um, and that the Earth is essentially a pool of water uh, with, with little islands in it uh, in an infinity of ice. And so this this infinite plane uh, model, which is which is one that used to be quite a vociferous argument on the Flat Earth Society forum as to whether it was a disk or an infinite plane. And so where Antarctica fits in, um, in both models, they look to uh, history to support it. And you see kind of uh, the explorations of people like uh, Admiral Richard Byrd, who went to Antarctica. Uh, and I think he was caught on television as saying he went there and saw there was a, a, a continent of ice the size of North America um, beyond uh, beyond there. So when he got there, there was a, a North American size landmass there. And Flat Earthers will look at that and say, well, that has to prove that there is an infinity of ice because if you can get to what is meant to be the South Pole and then look beyond the South Pole and still see a continent the size of North America and more, that clearly can't be uh, the, this idea that there is a discrete landmass of Antarctica. It's got to be bigger than that. Um, and what they're missing is Richard Bird wasn't talking about getting to the most southerly point of the entire globe and looking beyond that and seeing uh, North America. He was talking about getting to the start of Antarctica, essentially getting to Antarctica, uh, where when and, and then from there seeing a, this big landmass in Antarctica. I mean, you will know far better than I. Antarctica is pretty big, um, it, even in the conventional worldview. It's a lot there, you know. So if you, it's like landing in New York and saying there's a, a landmass the size of North America beyond it. I mean, there is, and you're you're on it, but that's not uh, it's not proof of anything nefarious. So. In the Infinite of Ice, they'll they'll point to Richard Bird's uh, his explorations and, uh, and and say that supports them. Uh, and then for people like the Dome uh, idea, this is something that Mark Sargent uh, talks about. Um, he looks to the Cold War, uh, and he says if you look at the way that uh, the U.S. and Soviet Russia were posturing at each other for for the decades following the Second World War. Um, Part of what they did was they kind of went around, they went to various parts of the world to, to set up uh, uh, bases of strategic military importance or looking for resources. And in doing so, they both turned to Antarctica. And according to Mark Sargent, when they got to Antarctica, both the Soviets and uh, the Americans found the edge, found the wall, found the edge of the dome. 
And from there, in the in the 1960s, uh, Sargent believes everything beyond that was a phony Cold War because the Americans and the Russians agreed to work together to hide the truth the truth of the dome from the the people to keep this secret knowledge. And he says we can we can prove that. Because if you look at what, what happened after that, you had the space race, uh, the Americans and Russians pretending to race each other into space in his worldview, because uh, you can't get to space because there's a dorm there. You can't get out into space. Um, and Marx, Marx Argent argues that we have proof of that. And that proof is on the gravestone of Werner von Braun. So Werner von Braun was the, uh, the, the Nazi rocket scientist whose uh, V2 technology was behind the bombers that were responsible for the Blitz, you know, the missiles in the Blitz. Um, but he was then smuggled out of uh, out of Germany at the end of the Second World War in Operation Paperclip and installed into the American space engineering program. And his rocket technology, if you believe the conventional worldview like I do, uh, was responsible for the Apollo program. And it, was, it went into and sort of literally boosted the American uh, attempts to get into space and eventually led us to the moon. And yet on his gravestone, there is a reference uh, to, uh, I forget the exact reference in Psalms. It's one of the, one of the, the, the Psalms is on there. And the reference specifically is the heavens declare the glory of the, the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And Mark Sargent points to this as evidence that the world is under a dome. Because he says, well, why would the father of space exploration have on his gravestone an etching that references the firmament, which is the biblical roof on top of the world? The only explanation Mark can think of is that this is Werner von Braun admitting from beyond the grave that actually it was a lie. That he just went along with whatever the Americans wanted him to pretend he was doing in order to save him from being in uh, in war crimes tribunals and things like that to get him out of Germany. But actually he couldn't hold on to the lie in death and had to admit from beyond the grave that there was a dorm on top of the world that was bound by Antarctica. Now I would argue that Another interpretation of that headstone is the bit where he says the heavens declare, declare the glory of God for a man who saw his technology as the key to the heavens. The reason we could get him into space at all was for his was because of his rockets. And so it was self-aggrandizement to say, here we are amongst the gods now. Here we are amongst the heavens looking down on Earth because of the work that I did. So either it's a deathbed confessional of, uh, of the roof on top of the world or it's a, a guy saying my work was pretty good um, either way. But you can see how the the Antarctic kind of uh, element comes in there. You have the the exploration of the unknown uh, and and the idea that people didn't return to Antarctica quite as often. You know, I think Richard Byrd went there and then he stopped going there after a while. And they say, well, there you go. That's proof that that he was banned from going there because he found the edge or because he knew that there was nothing else there. Um, you have kind of these these more unknown properties being used to feed in and support the the flat Earth narrative. I can speak extensively on Richard Byrd's role in Antarctic exploration, and if anyone ever needs me to, I'm happy to step into their Flat Earth forum and tell them about <laughs> He sort of didn't help because in his preparations for his first foray south, he was talking about how they, they might find verdant valleys with dinosaurs. And I know that he was a showman and that he was trying to get fundraising, but... It's such sort of Jules Verne imagery that people can't help but pick up on him as being the, the key to... And he's, he's, he's regularly brought up in the online spaces where I discuss Antarctica with other veterans of pr various research programs or 
engage in science communication and education, um, mm. people will turn up and throw their flat earth Richard Bird bomb into the mix. And it's never terribly compelling. And I, I can't encourage them to go and listen to the episodes where I talk about his expeditions because they're in a hurry. <laughs> but um, yeah, he was... Oh, he was a terrible person. <laughs> I've got very little time <laughs> for him. And yeah. his his mode and his methods were dictated by the funding that he was avail the funding that was available to him and the political fortunes of the people that he supported. So he he was very much a an isolationist in the lead up to the Second World War and actually ended up mm-hmm. backing a couple of pro-Nazi Americans and companies and it took him a long time to get off that bandwagon and it was only after he did that President Roosevelt would end, would um, speak to him again and for someone as broadly incompetent as Richard Evelyn Bird he just managed to sort of bumble along and not die and not have anyone die while in his care <laughs> through luck And there are Mm. so many other better people that went south and experienced tragedy through the equivalent bad luck that just Mm. aren't as well known. And fortunately, because he was such a paranoid self-promoter, his legacy is diminished over time because people would rather that he be forgotten than remembered as the flawed person that he was. So the people that loved him and the people that travelled with him and were very loyal to him, rather than defend charges against him, have just let his legacy fall silent because I think they know how bad he will look in the future. Yeah, fortunately, he's sort of a, a dying ember of Antarctic history. But among the people that I did interact with online that were throwing their Richard Bird-themed nonsense into the mix when I was trying to educate people the the idea of a flat earth expedition south to find the wall came up on several occasions do you know if anything ever came of that yeah as I understand it it never did and it does make me wonder how committed they ever were to the idea of the expedition um because Flat Earthers do regularly carry out experiments to test their ideas. And, and, you know, to their credit, quite a lot of Flat Earthers do that. There are some who just stick to pictures. You know, I can't see the curve here um, and and that kind of stuff and never really deviate from those arguments. But there are Flat Earthers who are actually trying to do some pretty scientific stuff. Um, At the Flat Earth conference I went to, one of the the most boring, but in in a way kind of most uh, admirable talks was from a guy who'd uh, set a camera up on the same spot in his backyard every single night to take photos of the moon to then track the movement of the moon across the night sky over the course of you know two months or something like that and then put his 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 own kind of measurements and uh, and observations in and compare them to con- to the conventional uh plotting of the moon uh and you, he actually had a, a time-lapse video of, him, of himself at, during his presentation uh, entering all of his re- his uh his measurements into excel and he was very proud of it um and then at the end he he kind of re- his uh summation was his experiments deviated from the conventional experiments by a small amount and that proves that the conventional experiments are a lie um because the numbers are different i said well yes it either proves that or it proves that your measurements 
were not wholly accurate because you were just sticking your camera on the tripod in about the same place, but not necessarily exactly the same place. But like the fact that he even went through that level of kind of rigor is uh, is interesting because it shows that some that flat earth isn't about rejecting empiricism but it's about trying to manufacture places where empiricism might support them and then trying to explain when it doesn't and that's possible to do when you're taking photos of the moon in your backyard or when you're using lasers to to measure uh weathers how 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 straight a level is between two points it's very difficult to do when you're in a hot air balloon traveling over antarctica and you don't see a wall um so i i strongly like to my knowledge the expedition that they uh, were touting for a while in various expeditions never came to the, never came to be and i think a few of the the people who were trying to put it together um we could question whether their motives were looking for genuine truth or whether they were looking for people willing to give them money towards an idea um so yeah i don't think the antarctic expedition ever happened that that's not to say that flat earthers are, haven't been incredibly committed to to their ideas i know there was uh, a chap called um mike hughes i think his surname was he was an american chap who built his own rocket uh he was a, a former kind of stuntman and daredevil and various things like that and he built a rocket to get him high enough up to see the curvature and he actually died when that rocket uh that rocket malfunctioned so people are pretty committed to it but maybe not on not at the scale it would be required to put together an antarctic expedition i remember that rocket accident and he could have gotten in a cessna and gone far higher than the rocket ever reached. I, I wonder. I don't really understand what was going. Well, he got into a steam-powered rocket. I don't understand what was going full stop. Well, he's, he's of... he is covered in a book by um, by Kelly Weil uh, called "Off the Edge," where um, I think she's a, a journalist at the Daily Beast who's covered some of this kind of uh, stuff on, on the flat Earth, picking up on on various other books that have been written. Um, that go through the history quite well uh, there's a, a great book called flat earth by christine garwood that really does the history incredibly well but what kelly wilde uh what's really interesting about her book is she knew mike hughes pretty well because she she interviewed him lots of times she would call him from time to time he'd call her and she had quite a a friendly working relationship and describes him as a friend um and she talks a lot about his motivations and talking to the people in his life who uh who knew him um and so yeah if people are interested in exactly what was going on with uh with with quote-unquote mad my cues um then that book is definitely worth checking out it's really interesting thanks i wonder sometimes about the expeditions that get announced and then you never hear anything else about them and i'm thinking particularly of the bipolar expedition that i saw online about 12 years ago and it was an expedition to the north and south poles to raise awareness of bipolar disorder and it was two SAS types and several people with bipolar disorder and it sounded like a bad idea at the time mm. and then I never heard anything else about it and I, I just wonder if there's a lonely tent out there with a bunch of corpses in it um, but it's, it's <laughs> possible that flat earthers have gone south with the Antarctic tourism industry and when you're guiding in the south you are given a lot of responsibility for the safety of other people, but not much in the way to enforce that. And if someone decided that they were going to head off into the hinterland looking for the wall, it would take an act of violence to prevent them. And I'm probably more likely to watch them run off into the hinterland than risk a punch in the face. Mm. 
but it hasn't it's happened nice. on any of the voyages that I've been on yet. Yeah, and and I, I I honestly, I honestly would be surprised if they were committed to uh, committed enough to it. I think they're incredibly committed to the idea, but they're not necessarily committed to uh, going a long way out of their way to find empirical proof. They're much more committed to um, what's the best way of putting it? Nitpicking around the edges and anomaly hunting in the in the official story. Like one of the things I found really interesting being at the Flat Earth Conference was how occasionally in some of the talks someone would get up and explain how they believe in this version of the flat earth because the other version of the flat earth is wrong for these reasons so i believe in the dorm uh because the infinite infinity of ice is wrong for these reasons um and the next speaker would get up and completely you and completely justify their idea using all of the the points that the previous speaker have just pointed out are wrong and no one in the audience cared nobody was like hang on you're saying this but the previous guy just proved that that isn't true because all the audience seemed to really care about was that they all disagreed with the conventional view. Once you're outside of the mainstream, once you agree with us that everyone else is wrong, it doesn't matter what flavour of right you are. And so I think the research work uh, that's, more, that's done more often and more, uh, more vigorously, or was done more vigorously in the Flat Earth movement, is much more about poking holes in the official narrative. And it's, it's also why I think we've seen the flat earth movement basically move on. So once YouTube and once Facebook changed their algorithm to stop prioritizing this material, people stopped getting recruited to the flat earth in large numbers. Um, they started getting recruited to QAnon instead in large numbers. And then those algorithms, the algorithms that were, were, were favoring QAnon for various reasons. And, you know, I can talk at length about those. Uh, when those changed, people went on to a different idea. And then the pandemic hit, and people, the people who would otherwise have been drawn to the flat earth narrative now got drawn to the pandemic as a hoax and the vaccine is evil kind of narrative to the point where one of the biggest COVID deniers, big, biggest and most influential move, uh, people in the UK COVID denial movement is Darren Nesbitt, the guy from the flat earth conference, who was one of the speakers at the flat earth conference, who I interviewed on Be Reasonable as a flat earther. Now he's the editor of a, a newspaper called The Light Paper, which is a an anti-vax newspaper that he distributes that has actually recently been starting to get published in in Australia too, like an Australian edition of The Light Paper. So I think what this what the flat earth movement did at the time was coalesce a lot of people who were looking for reasons to doubt mainstream versions of reality. And then those people are much less likely to raise a huge amount of money to spend weeks tramping through the ice uh, than they are to spend time online looking at yet another video of an astronaut in space and pointing out where they can see that they're on wires, uh, even though those wires have been photoshopped out because of this particular thing that they found in this particular pixel of this particular video. It seems that even if they did head south and disappeared into the hinterland and died, as I would expect them to do on my experience of Antarctica and an oblate spheroid model of the Earth, that would still not dent mm. anyone's idea because they would explain it away as that person is now part of the conspiracy. They've been hidden or paid off or... Or, if or killed. Tried... You know, if, if they went to Antarctica and died, then it'd be like, well, there you go. There's evidence. You know, they, they got to the truth and they got, they got, they got killed for it by the conspiracy. Ah, well, travelling to Antarctica does carry its own pretty, to me, potent evidence that the Earth is an oblate spheroid in that you cover lines of longitude far, 
faster as they converge towards the pole. So mm. traveling east and west, you're, you're changing your longitude and your day is shifting through the time zones far more quickly. And the day length changes with the seasons in a, in, to the point that you, you know, once you're past the Antarctic Circle, you have 24 hours of daylight at the solstice and 24 hours of darkness at the winter solstice. How would a flat earther react to that sort of, to me, com- really compelling evidence? How do they how do they react when evidence, or it, to to me, the most obvious evidence that the Earth is curved is standing at the shore and watching a ship disappear over yeah. the horizon. It's not it's not shrinking to the disappearing point. It's gradually dropping behind the horizon. The hull disappears first, then the superstructure, then the cranes and the mastheads. And my children have been observing this since they were five and six years old. What happens to a flat earther when they are confronted by evidence that I find so compelling? Yeah, I mean, so so the, the things disappearing over the horizon comes up quite a lot. And so uh, what they will usually say is um, it's not going uh, beyond the horizon. It is just getting so small that you can't see it. And there's interference or there's this sort of uh, environmental and atmospheric interference between you and it. And if you take out a a camera with an incredibly high powered zoom, I think they they go for the the Nikon P900 is their camera of choice because it's got a really powerful zoom. So they all bang on about the Nikon P900. Uh, this podcast isn't brought to you by Nikon P900, I'll point out. Um, but they'll take that camera out and, and they'll t- put the, the zoom on its highest level and then you'll be able to see the ship again. And they'll say, you see, it just went out of uh, out of view. Now, when they do those experiments, it typically is uh, under certain a- atmospheric conditions. And so where uh, conditions where things like atmospheric lensing can take place. So you're looking across uh, the sea and if the if the temperatures and, and various kind of aspects are, are right then you end up having light sort of bend around the curvature of the earth a little bit in the same way that water distorts at the edge of a glass um, you can sort of see a little bit further and it kind of distorts that vision a little bit and so they will point to instances where things go out of sight but then you can zoom to see them again um, but they only ever do that in, in times when the conditions are right and they'll even say things like if you stand on the the shores of this lake in America, and you look out, you can see Chicago, even though Chicago is way further away than you'd be able to see with the curve. And how is that possible, they would say. And they'd say on a, on a clear day, you can do that. And what they mean by a clear day is a day where atmospheric lensing is, is possible, where you have this kind of bending of light going on. And they'll also do things like you can see Chicago, but you can't see the base of the buildings. You can just see some of the buildings. So you're already kind of uh, playing with the angles a bit and you're not necessarily stood on the shore you may be stood a bit uphill of the shore so you've got yourself a sort of a, a different angle to view but they will take those stories and memes that gets passed around as evidence uh, against that and they'll take out a camera and they'll zoom in and they'll be able to see slightly further than they think they should um, and then when it comes to like the daylight and stuff they've actually done quite a lot of work on this that i i don't think is compelling and i don't think is accurate but i think if i were looking for um, an easy way to dismiss the daylight argument, I'd find this p- persuasive, where they say, well, the sun isn't this massive ball millions of miles away. It's actually much, much smaller and much, much closer. 
So why does why do day do, do days get lo- uh, shorter when you're heading away, uh, heading down south towards uh, towards the edge, as they put it? Well, you're getting further away from the small sun. And how come you end up in times when they have 24 hours of daylight? Well, the sun moves around the flat earth. And so there are times when the sun is quite high above where you happen to be at that point. And there's times when it's quite far away from where you happen to be. And so by dr- drawing these kind of geometric patterns of the way that the sun transit ac- transits across the uh, the spherical, uh, sorry, the, the circular earth, the flat earth, uh, they can account for that. Now, it, it, they don't account for it in a way that any physicist or meteorologist could look at and say well this this would be coherent and comprehensive but as a a quick dismissal of the initial point which is all people are really looking for because they come to flat earth looking to believe and therefore looking for reasons to uh reject disproofs and so that's a, a very quick rejection of the disproof. The sun isn't as big as you think. The sun is much, much closer than you think. And so when the days are long, it's because the sun is nearer to you. When the days are short, it's because the sun is on the other side of it. Wow. <laughs> I remember watching the documentary Behind the Curve and seeing that in action with the people that replicated the Bedford level experiment and didn't get, mm. the, didn't get the results they were expecting. And then there was the, the procession of the gyroscope and yeah. a measurement of 16 and a half degrees an hour procession, as you would expect in a gyroscope on an on a oblate spheroid that was spinning. And they would just sort of, you could see the wheels turning and it's like, how, how can this be? How does, how do I incorporate this into my model? Because the conclusion's already fixed. Yeah. It, it very much is that it's, it's, uh, I've already got this worldview. And it's, it's, it's why they spend most of their time looking for anomalies in the conventional model and never testing their own model for anomalies. Because if they were to do that, they'd, be, they'd encounter all manner of problems. And so if you ever talk to a flat earther about those problems, they will immediately try to shift the conversation back to, well, how do you feel about this that NASA have said? And what about this particular video where this particular thing happened? And, what, and just to every time you counter one of their points they'll just move on to the next point and it's why when i talk to flat earthers i try not to counter point by point but i try to instead understand why they believe not why they not how they justify their belief necessarily or how they would explain their belief to a a third person um but how they explain their belief to themselves because i think you get to much more interesting territory and you get you get much closer to the truth because otherwise what people are trying to do is just deflect criticism and if you come at them with the same criticisms they've heard uh, from a million different places about ships disappearing over the horizon and not being able to see a curve and various things like that, uh, they will give you the answer they've given everybody else who's ever brought that up to them. So you have to try and engage with them in a, in a different way in order to, to draw out what they really think because they are just involved in this, this exercise of defend the conclusion that they have uh, and attack the opposite of that uh, in order to try and deflect from the fact that there there's more belief in this idea than there is evidence well that leads to my next question um listening to the dialogues you engage in on be reasonable it sometimes reminds me of guided metacognition which if listeners aren't familiar with it it's a technique that psychologists sometimes use to try to help a person reach a perspective that they otherwise wouldn't find on their own. 
And mm. sometimes that can lead to a breakthrough in dealing with a particular problem. Have you ever had that sort of breakthrough in, dis in your discussions with people where something that you've said or a perspective that you've helped a person reach has broken the hold of that foregone conclusion with them? Um, yeah, yeah, I have. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's what, what I'm doing is kind of Socratic dialogue. It's kind of rather than trying to push a, a point and explain to people why they're wrong, I'm trying to get them to a point where they might be able to uh, stumble across the reasons why their ideas don't necessarily hold for themselves um, so that they will feel the, the dissonance of that much more. If I point out why what they're saying doesn't make sense in a way that feels like I'm attacking them, um, they'll just deflect. They'll defend. It's what they do. It's what we all do when our, our when the ideas we care about get attacked. Um, but if I can get them to a point where they are challenging their own ideas through the the, the way that they're talking to me about what it is that they think, um, it's much much harder to deflect from your own uh, your own inquisition. And so when it comes to flat Earth, I don't think I've been able to shake the foundations of what they believe. Uh, in any of the cases that I've spoken to people, partly because the people that I speak to for be reasonable tend to be not just believers, but active proponents. So these aren't just people who've soaked in the ideas, but they're people who are going around persuading other people, which means they've they've internalized it to a point where it's become, for, for many people, part of how they identify themselves, a big part of their identity. You know, I'm, I'm the flat earth guy. You can't, Mark Sargent being on Behind the Curve, and he, he was a, ch a chap that I also interviewed, he found fame from doing this. He found acclaim. He found lots of interest from people. A conversation with a stranger he's never met before for an hour on a podcast is not going to shake his beliefs. Um, so, I, I, so what I'm trying to do in those cases is is reflect back the, the gaps in those beliefs so that anybody who's on the fence listening may well uh, find the, the flat earth ideas less convincing than they, they would have done. But when I've engaged with people in other ways, I have actually been able to have some success. And uh, the, the, the pandemic is a great example of that. So during COVID, I joined uh, an anti-vax telegram group because I was interested in how anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theorists were talking to each other. I'm still in that telegra uh, telegram group and, and lots of other telegram groups uh, alongside it. Um, and when I was talking about some of the things that I'd learned about in those groups, and I gave a talk on YouTube about it, uh, the group realised who I was and I was kind of outed, which is a bit worrying because in one of the things I cover is that these conspiracy theorists don't just stay at the flat earth and they don't just stay at vaccines or evil. They go much further into, well, who are the shadowy organisations hiding the truth from the people and what religion are they and why is it the Jews? You know, we get into some pretty dicey territory pretty quickly and even with flat earth, that's true. I think every time I meet a flat earther, one of the things I ask him quite early on is, you know, I'll answer any question that you have. But first, just a quick question for me. What do you think about the Holocaust? And in all the times that I've asked that, I've only ever found two people who say, say that they believe the Holocaust happened. Uh, and those two were uh, were flat earthers from the Czech Republic. And I don't know whether because of their pro the proximity to Eastern Europe and Central, uh, Central and Eastern uh, kind of European areas uh, made them much more acutely aware of the reality of the Holocaust than here in the UK or, or in the US where it was at a distance. So there is some anti-Semitic stuff kind of going on there. Um, but when I talked about this stuff and I was suddenly outed in these uh, anti-vax groups, I was a little bit worried. But then one of the admins of the group started talking to me and asking me to justify myself. And we got talking over the space of a couple of weeks, a couple of months, 
and eventually he got to a point where he realized that the the whole anti-vax movement was wrong this conspiracy mindset that he'd had since school since 9 11 uh and watching truth of videos on youtube was completely wrong and, and he's now left that uh that conspiracist community and joined a skeptical community because he realized he was looking for answers but he hadn't quite been able to develop how to the tools to check whether his answers were were real or not and so it is possible to use that Socratic method and that open active listening and the metacognition that you're talking about to disentangle someone from these beliefs. But you have to do it by getting them to examine their own beliefs. Um, and that involves you being willing to examine your own beliefs and be honest about that and not go in with a big agenda um, and sort of lead themselves out of the darkness with you being the torch rather than you kind of dragging them into the light yourself. Something you mentioned about that person was that they are now part of a sceptical organisation and I wonder if that is part of the, the key to people changing, that we, we are a communal organism and we look for community and when you only have one community, it's very frightening to stand against the values of that community. But if you have a backup you can find the find the opportunity and the the courage to to stand up to a bad idea because you've you've got that fallback and i've seen that in a few people leaving churches and coming to atheist activism or uh what's the most recent example i i had it the other day um but yeah just if you've got a community fallback or more than one community, I think people are more willing to to question the values of either or any mm. given community that they're part of. Yeah, no, a... I think I think that's very that's very true. Um, and one of the things that I that I that I talk about, especially when it comes to some of the more abhorrent beliefs. So uh, flat Earth itself is relatively harmless, but I've, as I say, I've never found it in isolation. I've always found it alongside a load of other beliefs that get into positions of anti-Semitic anti conspiracy theory, that get into into uh, positions of you know denial of uh, of things like vaccines and stuff like that. And I think for people to end up in these quite extreme positions, often there's a period of isolation, either self-imposed because they will all... Actually, this is the best explanation I have. Darren Nesbitt, the guy who was the flat Earth, who was at the Flat Earth Conference and now runs the anti-vax newspaper, at the start of his talk in the Flat Earth Conference, he put up this list that he called the Flat Earth Questionnaire. And it was things like... The questions to ask yourself, yes or no. And it was things like, do you find that more and more often... Your conversations gravitate always back to the flat earth, regardless who you're talking to. Do you find it harder and harder to socialize with people who don't realize the world is flat? Um, do you find yourself thinking that most people's problems would be fixed if they just accepted the truth of the flat earth? And in the room, you would see people nodding and smiling and recognizing themselves as I said yes to these questions. And then Darren pointed out that the questionnaires he was reading out was the are you in a cult questionnaire? You know, the questions to ask yourself to, to indicate whether you're in a cult or not. And he was pointing out that if you're saying yes to this, this means you're not engaging necessarily in your critical thinking. You need to be able to recognize when you may or may not be in a cult, which I thought was fascinating to bring to that audience, but also fascinating specifically from someone who is then going to tell them that the world is flat uh, and that vaccines aren't, uh, aren't real and things. 
And I think there is a kind of cult-like thing of people feeling isolated from their friends and family once they come across these beliefs and finding it harder to talk to them. And so they, they find this community of people who agree with them. Um, but then if you find someone in that community who agrees with you on this stuff, but also thinks there is a Jewish plot to control the world or that one race is a, is a superior race to another, how easy is it for you to cut that person off, especially if that person's uh, welcome in the group? I think it's much, much harder for you to walk away from them because once you've walked away from one community into the Flat Earth community, for example, once you leave the Flat Earth community, where do you go? How, how many communities can you leave behind before you've got nowhere left to turn? And so the way to get people back out is to give them those connections so that when they turn their back on the ideas and, and therefore turn their back on the, the society that, that has been built around those ideas and the community and the, and the bonds that they've formed... They need to know that they're not going to be on their own and, and completely alone because that will motivate them not to leave. You have to give them a, a space they can go to where they can still talk to people and still have that human engagement because otherwise it's really difficult to walk away from the only community you've got left. Well, perhaps the Hollow Earth Society will um, pick up the dregs. <laughs> so Hollow Earth features prominently in early Antarctic exploration in that John Cleve Sims was a, a very vigorous proponent of the Earth being several concentric hollow spheres with openings at the poles. And hmm. while that's not the case, he managed to get sort of the first government-backed American expedition up and running based on his lectures about this remarkable idea. And he's a remarkable character. He was very intelligent, but was living in the middle of nowhere without access to libraries, and he, he never got a, a tertiary education. I don't think he even had much of a secondary education. Mm. And he just started thinking, and that's where his mind went. And the ideas... Have, he wasn't the first person to think that there was a, a, a hollow earth... And his, mm. his ideas largely died out when he did, but they still crop up every now and then. And I actually met a hollow earth proponent on one of the ships that I was working um, oh, really? in the Antarctic tourism industry. And at the end of a, I, I did a lecture about Antarctica in fiction. And at the end, there was a bit of a joke about the flat earth. And she, during the question and answer, asked me, but, you know, You've, you've dismissed the flat earth, but what about the hollow earth? That's, you know, that's where I'm really interested in. And I, I said, I think I made some off-the-cuff flippant remark dismissing it. And she said, but the UFOs are going somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And I really didn't know how to respond to that. And it had me stumped. But mm -hmm. it's remarkable. It's, it's almost just a, a quirk of fate that the flat earth society had the website that was prominent at the point in history that you earmarked earlier and not some other um... so yeah it, it is but um what i think is really interesting is when you were around the flat earth society did you know they had a podcast for a short space of time the, the flat earth podcast no i did not um so that was where um one of the places i first listened to them before i interviewed them and what i was fascinated by i think like episode three was them interviewing a hollow earther 
<clears throat> a guy called Rodney Clough. I think it was Rodney Clough. Um, and what? And so I rushed to listen to it. And what I was amazed by was they didn't really disagree, even though their ideas are fundamentally incompatible. They didn't so really that, disagree because what they could agree on was that the conventional view was wrong. So that nixes my idea of putting flat earthers and hollow earthers into a locked room and solving the problem. <laughs> yeah, no, they've, they've done it themselves. They've put themselves in that room and they've agreed that we're all wrong. And so, you know, once, you're, once you agree that everyone else is wrong, it doesn't matter what flavour of right you are because they're looking for uh, camaraderie outside of the mainstream. They're looking for a coalition of non-mainstream positions rather than necessarily to coalesce around a final conclusion. Um, but yeah, so I, I went on to interview, I think, I'm fairly sure it was Rodney Clough that the Flat Earth Society interviewed. It was definitely Rodney Clough, the, the, the hollow earther that I interviewed. Um, and absolutely, as, uh, as you talked about, uh, you know, he talked about how there were the holes in the earth and that's where the UFOs went. But he also talked about how people from history have, uh, have escaped and disappeared into those, uh, into the, the holes in the flat earth. So there was a Viking ship that went there and there was an Inuit tribe who escaped disease by going into the centre of the earth and uh, some of the Nazis escaped persecution by going to the centre of the earth um, and I pushed back on that a little and he said yes you know some of them took U-boats and others took uh, other Nazis took uh, spaceships from Venus to go there because the Nazis had been given spaceships from the Venusians um, at, at some point and I said well if the Nazis had spaceships from Venus wouldn't they have used those more in the war? And Rodney said, well, no, because they promised the Venusians that they wouldn't use them in the war. And I said, yeah, but are Nazis going to keep that promise? He said, well, because you know, the Nazis aren't necessarily good people. He said, no, the Nazis were pretty good people. They were just defending Germany from attack from, uh, from Russia and from Poland. So they were really just looking to kind of secure their borders and defend themselves. I said, OK, even if you believe that was true. The Holocaust is obviously a bad thing. How would you explain that? You know, how do you explain six million dead Jews? He said it wasn't six million dead Jews. And suddenly we're in a conversation about how the Holocaust wasn't real. And again, it just shows that slippage of ideas that once you're, once you're uh, swimming outside the bounds, um, you, can't, you can't control what waters you're going to swim in and what ideas you're going to swim through. Once you're already rejecting reality... Um, you have to start bolstering your worldview in other ways, and and it's it's something that uh, that I and a friend of mine, uh, Aaron Rabinowitz, that the podcaster and philosopher that we've discussed in the past, that once you're accepting these non-mainstream views in a conspiracy and conspiracism, you end up um, playing out what we like to call a reverse Godwin's law. As you know, Godwin's law of the internet: the longer an internet argument goes on, the the more the chances of someone calling you a Nazi approaches one. So you're going to be called a Nazi in any long internet argument. Uh, the reverse Godwin is the longer a conspiracy theory exists, um, the greater the chance that the Jews were behind it all along. Because once you're starting to look for reasons as to why the world is set up this way and why no one accepts the reality that you've definitely found out that the world is hollow or the world is flat or that 9-11 was an inside job or that the COVID vaccine is being pushed by a shadowy agenda, you're going to start looking for who is behind it all. And you're going to start looking at... 300 plus years of people blaming the Jews for all of these different horrible acts in the world and you're going to start bolstering your worldview out because you can't the hollow earth idea can't just float by itself forever it needs to be anchored to something as to well why would they hide this from us and who would hide this from us and what could they gain and you always end up at these uh these more negative and uh, anti-semitic places or you know historically um repugnant places 
I recall from an episode of Skeptics with a K where you discussed your trip to the convention. Mm. The keynote speaker had flown in from Argentina. Is is that correct? Ah, <laughs> oh, yes, Iru, Iru Landucci. Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, he was he was fascinating. He had a, a very interesting grasp of time. Um, he was an interesting speaker for lots of reasons. Um, he'd been giving a, a given a one hour slot to speak at the conference, uh, and he turned up with a, a PowerPoint that was two hours long. And so he spoke on the. They decided he was going to give his talk in two halves, and so he spoke. He did the first half on Saturday morning, uh, and that went for like two hours. And then he did the second half on Saturday afternoon, and that went out for an hour and a half. And then he did the third half on Sunday morning, and that was like another two hours. So it was an incredibly long talk, which barely touched on the flat earth, but did touch on all these other kind of conspiracy theories. But my favorite thing is that when he was introduced, the uh, the host, just as a funny little anecdote, said that Iru arrived earlier than anyone was, anyone was expecting. They were expecting him to land from Argentina on the Thursday, but for some reason he was there on the Wednesday and they had to rush to the airport to rescue him. And I thought to myself, yeah, I bet that happens all the time when your worldview can't account for the international dateline. Like these kind of mix up must happen a lot when you don't believe that the world is spinning and therefore it can be one day in Australia and a different day here in the UK. That's just one of my favourite things that I've ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Marsh, I'm really grateful for you putting your time aside on a Sunday morning and speaking to Ice Coffee. But thank you also for everything that you do to try and push back against nonsense. I think you've got a remarkable career behind you and ahead of you. And uh, I'm grateful that you're putting in the yards that you do and that you do it as well as you do. Oh, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I, and I love to to talk about these things and I love to uh, to find places where I can go and hang out with people I completely disagree with and understand what it is that's going on with them and then try to uh, spread a little bit of that, that information around. So, yeah, I always appreciate the uh, the opportunity to talk to people about this. I hope you have a great Sunday, Marsh. Take care. <laughs> you, you too. Bye, bye for now. Flat Earth adherents regularly turn up in the online discussion groups I frequent to share information about and ask questions regarding Antarctica. They tend to get short shrift from the locals, who understand the paradox of tolerance and seek to protect the community they value from external threats through judicious use of the erase and ban functions of the spaces they moderate. The banished see their treatment in those spaces as further evidence of the conspiracy they're working against which I find frustrating, but not so much that I'll put in time trying to assuage their concerns. Another set of people showing up with increasing frequency in those spaces are libertarians seeking to discuss their plans to move to Antarctica to bask in that stateless continent's lack of governance and gun laws. Mostly American, mostly mad as a shithouse rat, and mostly unwilling to listen to people who understand how to build, plumb and power buildings in Antarctica. I think it's only a matter of time before someone stumbles across the Antarctic Grafton, its structures filled with guns and ammo, frozen excrement and cold-soaked corpses. No bears this time, but bears in Grafton were an emergent property of applied libertarianism, not the problem with taking Ayn Rand's novels as a model for how to organise a community in itself. On the home front, I'm port sampling in the gummy shark fishery and looking forward to some commercial diving opportunities and further contracts on ships. My wife's pie business is ticking along nicely, 
and while I'm not yet able to retire to kept man status with pie to eat, I can see that ambition bearing fruit on the horizon. Our youngest is experiencing some bullying at their new school and a disappointing lack of support from one of their teachers. On overhearing some shitheads opining that you can't change your gender and taunting our child about future surgeries, the teacher did nothing. When called on to act on the matter by my child, the teacher responded that everyone's entitled to their own opinion, tacitly endorsing the bigotry. I suspect they took that line because they're a Christian and it's only a vague sense of self-interest associated with dancing away from the brink of an unemployment-level transgression that prevented them explicitly endorsing that bigotry. I have opinions too, and I'm willing to share them with that teacher very loudly. But, because I think it's more likely to yield the result we need for our child, I'm talking to lawyers about how best to force the school to hold its teachers and students to the values the school professes in its documentation. I've never spoken to lawyers before, and it's weird. Are they really too busy to speak to me before sunset? I'm taking a mirror to the next consultation. Australians will wring their hands after a tragedy with the best of them, but they won't lift a finger to prevent one unless you trap them in a corner like a rat and force them to do the right thing. I wish the teachers and the school would do the right thing for the right reason, but in lieu of that, I'm willing to do business with the children of the night to get the right result for the sake of not suing the school. I'm not entirely against unleashing a nest of vampires on the particular teacher that led us to this crossroads, but I expect them to exsanguinate him pro bono. Take care and appreciate your coffee, and furthermore, I consider that Carthage must be destroyed and that Hadley Mearsham is best avoided. Brief last-minute coda to episode 146. Ice coffee listeners, this has been a hard update to put together because I'm feeling a tremendous sense of guilt over my output in the past 10 years. I've been reading the Bible a lot and it's rekindled the faith I left behind three decades ago. I find myself deeply ashamed of a lot of what I spoke into the digital ether and I feel afraid I've corrupted the minds and souls of any listeners my blasphemy touched. I'm attending church on Sundays and doing what I can to mend my relationship with Jesus. I'll be holding virtual fellowship each Sunday evening, Australian Eastern Standard Time via Zoom, and I'd be grateful if anyone whose faith received dents off the back of my godless proselytizing joined the sessions. Links at the Ice Coffee WordPress site. Take care and appreciate your coffee and April Fool's.